folks, you're very welcome along this Monday evening to the TTM, to the LCC Oil TTM Monday Night Show. And delighted, as always, to be joined by our two regular guests, Mr. Harvey and Mr. Kelly. Kevin, Damien, good to have you with us. And our very, very special guest tonight is uh, over the water somewhere. Uh, not originally, of course, but he's uh, living in London. Lots to chat to him about, lots to catch up with. And they're delighted to welcome Chris McGill. Chris, good to have you with us. Thank you, all. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Great stuff. Lots to talk about, lads. Of course, at the weekend, we saw Dublin and Mayo qualify for the All-Ireland Final. Kevin, no surprise there? No, no, no real surprise. No, I think we, we touched on it last week. I think, you know, the provincials have the the, um, the capacity to throw up um, shock results. Javin uh, beating Donegal and, and Tipperary beating Cork, but um, they just were in a different, up against different opponents this weekend. And, you know, it's, uh, as I say, it's, it's only over 70 minutes. You're just what you do over 70 minutes. And Tipperary deserved to win the Monster Championship. There's, there's no doubt about that. But, um, you know, if Kerry hadn't been there today, if Kerry hadn't been in this Monster Champions, sorry, our last night against Dublin, there's no way there would have been that gap between the two teams. And, um, or sorry, against Mayo today, and there's the same last night with Calvin. Um, you know, I don't think Donegal or Tyrone would, would have been beat by as much as Dublin beat Calvin by. But look, it is what it is. I suppose when, when the when the semi-finals, we, we knew who the four provincial winners were. It was short odds. It was going to be a Dublin Mayo final. And that's the way it's going to be in two weeks' time. And um, I think it'll be a close game. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Dublin supremacy, Damien, is a spelling the death knell of the GA as we know it, you know, because it is becoming somewhat predictable. They're an exceptional side and, and we've got to take our hats off to them. Yeah, 2,288 days since the last loss game in the championship. Um, sorry, 89 now, or is it 90? Anyway, it, uh, it, the bottom line is the facts are they're just setting new records as, as we go on. And we have to understand that Players now from other counties are probably as well prepared as they've ever been in terms of their physicality. And yet you have this Dublin team who just seem to wipe aside anything that is thrown at it at the minute. Um, granted, um, it's been an exceptional year in terms of who the guys that have made the semi-finals. And, you know, if you'd have been talking at the start of the year about Calvin going up against Dublin in the semi-final, you'd have probably predicted this result. Um, and probably the same with a temporary Mayo but all four teams obviously reached their, as Kevin said earlier, reached the semi-final on merit. This year you can't take it away from any of the teams, but Dublin are just operating on a different level um, and will continue to do so. Um, it's up to everybody else to shape up and smarten their act up. Dublin, how Dublin did that a decade ago and they're reaping the benefit of it now. They're a hugely professional outfit in terms of everything they do. And we've got the right people in the right places. And that's as much to do with what is happening off the pitch as it is what's happening on it. Well, Kevin, the old saying about fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And uh, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. Dublin, obviously, are bringing it to a new level. And they really are hugely, hugely impressive. And to be honest, on the evidence of what we saw over this weekend, uh, both on Saturday night and on Sunday, it doesn't look as if uh, there's going to be an awful lot to stop them winning uh, another learning title. Uh, I don't know, no. I beg to differ there. I think, I think in recent times, apart from maybe 2018 against us, I think Dublin have uh, probably one of the worst performances that has come in the final in, in recent times. Like you go back to, it was 2016, they all scored two own goals. 
and uh, you know, still battling back to get a draw the following year. That Dublin beat again to get them on and sent off. So, you know, maybe this, you know, Mayo, Mayo have unearthed a couple of new players there too, and they seem to be more energetic or athletic around the middle of the field. And um, I definitely give them a chance. I think the fact that there's going to be no crowd would probably uh, act on their behaviour or act on their behaviour as well, because maybe in the past when the were within touching distance and maybe were hit by stage fright. There's going to be no fans there this time. I yeah. think it, I uh, I think it'll be a very close all in final. Uh, touch back on what what Damien said there. Look, you know, Dublin are there's no doubt they're they're a professional outfit. Uh, people can say about population and money, but you could say that's always been there. But look at the end of the day, the GA has um has pumped pumped a lot of money into the Dublin GA and and uh, you know they've created a monster. And um, that shows no sign of, uh, of of stopping at the minute. But again, you can go back back to even twelve months ago. Um, you know, Kerry Kerry pushed Dublin the whole way, and that was a Kerry team that uh, you know I still maintain. We said at the time of Tyrone, Tyrone had a pushed on the last five minutes of the first half last year in the semi final. Tyrone would have beat Kerry, should have beat Kerry. So you know, it's it's all on the day. Um, you know, Tipperary showed there by beating Cork. Cork probably played their monster final when beating Kerry and they couldn't get up for, for Tipperary in the final. And, um, you know, these things happened. Gavin deserved to beat Donegal in, a, in the Ulster final, but they were always going to be up against it last night. Um, you know, Dublin moved the ball the way they took the scores. It just, you know, they seemed to, by, by their own standards, probably didn't play well last night and still won by 15 points. But, you know, they will go into the final in two weeks' time as a hot favourite, but I definitely give Mayo a chance. Uh, well, it's, a, it's one of those games, and who knows? Well, of course, this time of year could have a huge say. Of course, that wasn't the only GA activity of the weekend. Well done to, to the Arsenal for a couple of Throne guys playing for them. Well, the girls who play their, their club camogie in uh, Eglis, and they won the, the, the All-Ireland title beating Cavan in the final, so well done to them. And to Fermanagh ladies with the one or two Throne connections there too, well done at the weekend. Here's one for you. I'm going to mention a name, Mr. Harvey, Mr. Kelly, Mr. McGill, uh, and I want you to think about it. Fra Fee. <laughs> Don't say anything, Chris. I only learned his name yesterday, no. <laughs> Fra Fee, gentlemen, is a actor, member. Actor, actor of great fame. From ah, um, you just researched it. Well done, Damien. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't research it. <laughs> Off the top of my head. Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, score, score an Oak champion 2004 or something like that. Uh, he is, he is, he's a score actor. His father is a, was a Bracken man originally, but associated with Kelly Man Club, former Kelly Man chairman of memory series. Right? But a guy who, who writes uh, plays and so on and writes sketches and poems and all sorts. And his son, Fra Fee, who is uh, a trained actor, is away at the minute uh, performing with the Marvel, that that, that uh what do you call it, the Superman franchise, call it what you like, but the Marvel franchise, and uh, it's great to see an, an ex-Kelly Man, GA Man, doing as well. Chris, keep that name in mind, because it might be useful later on. And as we yes, say, we are delighted to have Chris McGill with us. For those of you who haven't seen this, this is Chris's memoir. It is The Humpty Dumpty Man, A Life Rebuilt. And of course, The Humpty Dumpty Man, Chris, I suppose you may tell us why The Humpty Dumpty Man. Yes, thank you, Noel. Um, the name came from a consultant surgeon in, at the Ulster Hospital in Belfast uh, when he was introducing me to a group of junior doctors. And 
and swept his hand out and said, this is my Humpty Dumpty man. And, you know, so uh, it's always stuck with me ever since, but um, I've never written, people don't know that I was called that, but it seemed like a very appropriate title for, for the memoir because it's, there's a lot of ups and downs in the story. So, you know, it's uh, on the wall and off the wall yeah. <laughs> for many, many years. Mentioned the name the Humpty Dumpty Man. It wasn't the only name you were known as because you told us it tells us about Chris Christopher Christie and of course the Wolf of John Street. <laughs> I mean, those are just uh, some other names that are associated with you. Yeah, the one the one that my wife's not very happy about is is the Wolf of John Street, but everything else uh, <laughs> I can live with. Uh, um, so uh, yeah, it's very funny that story, you know, about the Christie thing, Noel. I mean, you, you've been um, a great reader for me over many years at this point um, because you know. Writing a book is, is very, very hard work and, and writing a memoir. And, and it's one thing to write, put the words down, but to make it interesting for, for a third party reader is another story as opposed to your own family. Um, and so it's been a real grind getting to the end. And, and Noel and, uh, is one of the core people over many years who's, who's read it for me and given advice and given support. And these things are very important when you're when you're working away on your own, trying to write something, you know, without, without a bunch of editors behind you or a big budget to um, get something done by next month or whatever it might be. So funny enough, it's a good point to, to bring on board this, which is something my wife brought home today. And it's, it's an image, it's a, a little um, statuette of a, of a pig with wings. So pigs might fly that we actually got the book finished. And so that was her joke on me today. She didn't know this was happening. So there you are. Um, but it's been uh, a long road. Interesting. What about, I must tell you the Christy Chris thing. No, yeah. actually, uh, because I was working in um, in Deloitte in Belfast, and and a very good guy from County Down, uh, and a good GA man as well, um, for, if that matters. But uh, called me in one day, and he called me to his desk rather, and said, "You know, uh, we're going out in this job tomorrow or whatever it was," and he said. Uh, you better got to change your name. And, and I said, what? He said, he said uh, you know, Christy makes it too easy for you to be identified as a Catholic. And from now on, you're Chris, he says. <laughs> and that's a true story. Yeah. And that was about, um, let me tell you what year that, that was, about 1987. Well, we all know, you know, we went that far from some of the, the worst times of, of, of the conflict in the North at that stage. You know, so it's not surprising that that, that self-preservation was it was a huge part of it, and I mean, sometimes identity, being able to be identified, was was something that we had to be very, very careful about. Well, listen, I mean, Chris, obviously, uh, you, you have some mementos there with you, not just the book, uh, the in terms of Throne GA, um, people who, who know you know that you were involved with with Club Throne right back at the start, mm-hmm. as a result of, of your your friendship with with, with Shane McKeown. Is that is that fair? That's right. Uh, he sent me a note one time uh, with, with the, um, must have been December 95 or certainly late 95 after we lost to Dublin. But he sent me a note, this little power screen, you know, um, with compliments slip and on it was written and inside was a membership document for Club Tyrone. And, and he said, he wrote on it, he said, Chris, it's payback time. And, uh, <laughs> as, if I, as, if, as if I owed him anything, but never mind. Uh, but anyway, it was a good line, um, and I sent it back a note saying, "Shay, you don't have to encourage me to do that. You know, if I want to quit the throne." But anyway, this was um, the Paris Green sponsorship charity, which I'm fairly sure was um, around at the time. And um, also, um, I noted there that that um, that 
Peter Kahneman got Player of the Year that year, 1995, and, and it was his power screen. I just looked it up earlier before I came on this, just trying to refresh my memory on a few dates. Um, and it was Peter, Peter won the Power Screen Player of the Year, year Award that year. Yeah, Kevin Power Screen. That's the Power Screen one, though. The other one is um, from 1973, this one. Um, a great man called Francie O'Neill. So um, you see what you can there, the red hand and Tyrone. And uh, that flag uh, I, I took to Croke Park and, and was lifted over the, in, the Kernstiles into the Cusick stand in 1973. Uh, and the main match was, uh, the, the senior match was, was Cork and Galway. And the, uh, we, we throw minors, of course, under Desi McKenna's captainship and Donald Downey's management. Uh, won, won the um, minor title that year would be Kildare the Lily White so I remember me with that flag having me lifted over the turnstiles going crazy I was a kid waving this thing back and forward as a 10 year old and, and getting in everyone's way which was all very fine during the minor match but not during the senior match you can imagine so yeah it was, that was uh, 1973 Funny flags Kevin something that we have uh, and Damien we always have a bit of fun about flags because any, any of the grounds that we go to up and down the country uh, the first thing we do is, is uh, look for Jared McGlynn, and the second thing Jared. we do, look for the drone flag, Kevin. Well, well that's, I'm glad to see that, that flag Chris is from the pole, that's the way it should be. Um, Jared McGlynn is, he just, any day it goes, and it's not right, he doesn't doesn't pull any punches, he doesn't belong sorting out or tracking down who's in charge and getting the flag sorted out, but Listen, it happens numerous occasions. No, and I even think that uh, when we were in Castlebar there, not that only a few weeks ago, um, we could have sword was dairy playing or cork because it, it was red and white rather than white and red. And I it was- uh, somebody had somebody had said to us that day that some one of these two teams is going to be the All Ireland final. Of course, we've been hoping it was going to be Tyrone, but um, a week later we have the championship and, and now Mayo are in the final again. So but yeah, the flags, the flags is a big. Um, they're a big issue up here, aren't they? But they're a big issue, especially when Tyrone when Tyrone are playing, because uh, you you don't, you don't need to know, or obviously people don't do the research oh. if they have the red close to the pole and all. Yeah, as well as I know there's a couple of people. Uh, well, there's numerous people. I think uh, from and around the Cookstown area, not that pleased that there's a boy up selling flags for an All Ireland final, maybe in 2003 on the Cookstown market. Uh, I'm sure you're selling red and white flags that day. Noel again, do you want to maybe share with us exactly what type of flag you're selling? Are we just selling anything that was moving? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. No, I'll explain the whole situation. Chris, just to familiarize yourself, I used to be a bit of a, a merchandising back, back in the day, you know. But uh, yeah, boy. What myself and Neil Colgan, we were selling white. We, have, we designed our own flags, designed our own t-shirts, designed our own tops, absolutely everything. And the only flags that weren't white to the pole were ones that were red to the pole, and what we did was them. We sold those to the back door, and we sold them only to Jerry supporters. Well, Noel, what I tell you about flags, I'm not saying it's you, but I remember back in the 90s, when the flags, I know up around this part, it was uh, the red and pink, because when, when it rained, <laughs> the red was that part. <laughs> yeah. All these flags, all I could see is flags right around the house, and the, the red was actually running into the white. Yeah, no. But don't think, don't think they were your flags, Noel. Where, where, <laughs> certainly where there are flags at all. Chris, go, go, going back to, to, to uh, your, your situation <laughs> and the club's own Gervahi, when you go past Gervahi now, Chris, and you, and, and you look at that and you think, you know, 
must be a great source of, of, of pride and of, of satisfaction that that was something that, that was dreamt about a way back and it was the likes of yourself and guys like you who, who were the first people to put their hands in the pockets to make that happen. Well, you know, um, now that you mentioned it, I mean, I was, by, because of Shane McKeown, I happened to be a founding member of Club Tyrone, which I'm very proud of. Um, and it was always great, you know, listen to the captains pick up the cup and, and, and you know, always say, and this is for Club Tyrone. You didn't actually feel you were making a difference, to be honest. Um, and Gervahi, um, I, I very rarely go to Oma, but I always stop with Gervahi on my way uh, in, in Balagali Line. So I drive up there and drive around, either coming in or coming out. But I certainly have I've not been there at any time that I can recall where I haven't been in, you know. Certainly, yeah. I was a Gervahi patron, I think it was called, yeah. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, it was very, very, it's, it's such a fabulous facility, you know, and... Um, and to see um, you know, the current management team, you know, Peter there making very good use out of it, you know, um, I think it's um, it's fabulous, you know. Yeah. Well, come here, listen, uh, there, there, I was just, just came across this uh, wee quote last week from a Jesuit priest called Carl Rayner. And he was asked one time, being a priest, a, a German TV interviewer asked him, did he believe in miracles? He says, I don't believe in them. I live by them. So, Chris, what do you think of your life? When you think of particularly, which is dealt with very, very well in the book, uh, to me is the central core of it, particularly in terms of the the, 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 the title, uh, the accident. When you think how close you came to death, and possibly more than one occasion in, in that particular incident, you know, looking back on it now, you must consider yourself a miracle that you still are where you are. Yeah, it was an absolute miracle. I mean, the, the lorry was coming over the uh, bonnet of the car, over the engine, and just sort of careering towards me with with sheer wheel you know the tire sheared off and 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 I don't know I just had imagined I, I don't I, I'm sure I hadn't got time to think what I was thinking if you know what I mean it was all happening so fast but um you know the next thing happened is it came onto the steering wheel and it inverted the steering wheel and turned the car but in doing that you know it severed my hand I lost my elbow you know um got my skull fractured my face my jaw broken and, and everything was like like this, so you know it's all a split second. But uh, you know, if it had a, if it had a come on me another two inches, I would have been beheaded. And and had it not have turned the steering wheel, I would certainly have been beheaded. Um, and then um, um, you know that was pure miracle. And then a young lady, um, eighteen year old trainee nurse, um, you know, come in at Daisy Hill Hospital in Uri. It was getting up for work that morning. Um, it was Killeen, you know. Um, there'd been a lot of, um, you know, it's generally called bandit country back in the day, and there'd been a lot of activity around that place, with bombs and roadside bombs and so on. And and their house was affected by a few of them, you know, and, and um, some terrible events happened there. Um, but anyway, um, she said to me afterwards that the first thing she heard was the bang, and she thought it was another bomb. So when they found that the car that I was in the car, that she got into the car through the passenger door, and and the first thing she said, the first thing I saw was the hole in your arm, that's the elbow, um, and then she said I had to open your airways, you know, and and you know she used some work shirts that were hanging up in the back of the car, thank the Lord, and and stop the the blood because I was this this was all severed here, and I was choking literally. I would have died in one minute. You tell me, not long very, very soon. So again, she took a huge risk getting into the smoking car and her father told me afterwards that he said, Look, 
don't get into that car. So that was that was the second miracle, and then the third miracle, um, they took me to Daisy Hill Hospital. At, um, but of course, I, I lay there for an hour because uh, the police wouldn't come to the scene of a crash. So a crash at six thirty, and I wasn't. I was probably still there at eight thirty, to be actually honest with you. And then they, in the confusion, they reported through my donor card to my sister that I was dead. Um, and then they told her to contact um, Daisy Hill Hospital to, to you know, to give them the go ahead to take my organs. Uh, and then they said, no, no, he's not dead, sort of not yet. You know, and there's, there's a nurse from OMA, actually, I won't say her name, but uh, who had to be relieved from her uh, emergency um, room duties that day, couldn't continue. So then very fortunately, and finally, um, there was a consultant there from Belfast, from the Ulster Hospital on day release there, and he was able to help. The anaesthetist put me on a ventilator, and he told me afterwards, had he not have been, or had I not, had I not have been on the ventilator, I would have died. I wouldn't have made it to Belfast. So, three occasions on one day. Yeah. But I mean, when you think back and you think to the risk that young Gerd took at 18 years of age was unbelievable, and all those those other wee things that fell in horrendous horrendous event, well, those other things fell in in, in your favour. And you know you were hanging on for, by by your fingernails to life, Chris. But I mean, those were the things that made the difference on the day. Yeah, I mean it's it's pure luck, right? I mean, it's, um, I've just recently got in touch with somebody who had a really bad head injury, and and a friend put me in touch with that person, and they live in County Down, and you know, um, really an awful outcome by comparison to me. And, and we were just having a correspondence last night. And uh, he showed me something he had written, which is why I mentioned it. And um, I won't say his name, but, you know, he um, wrote this very, you know, practical, how to deal with where he is type five, six pager, you know, and, and it was very, very good. And I could see totally what he was saying. And, and for me, the only thing I could take away from it was how lucky I was not to be in the same position. You know, yeah. and, but, he's, but he's doing well. He's got a wife and kids and he's got three, three boys and doing really well and, and you know you just gotta you just gotta make the most of it and get on and live right yeah I mean, that's... but i mean i just want to say that that, that was one of the, the most traumatic events that, that i ever read and i remember i think i might have said to you at the time but i remember when i read it and i read all the other bits and pieces and i thought i said to myself if this was a work of fiction people would say nah that sort of thing doesn't happen <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's not a work of fiction and you're the living proof that it does and it has and, and, and so on. But when, when you think of it, and there's so many other things that are running through the story, obviously, um, I mean, when I thought, you know, you're orphaned at such a young age, um, thrown out of school, basically, and, 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 you know, to the wolves, so to speak. I mean, you're on your own. There was no pastoral care. Yourself and Paul were just thrown out, and that was it. But I do worry that there's not enough um, free thinking, you know, and, and, and laissez-faire approach. And I should say... That I went to Oma Tech and they were just absolutely brilliant there. You know, I mean, um, I, could, I could name a whole lot of people, Joe Byrne, the counselor and, and um, a fabulous guy and his wife, Ursula, you know, Dickie Doak, who lives about the town there, was married to Rosemary Mullen, Paul Moore, who writes for the Ulster Herald, uh, Seamus Devlin, who was the headmaster, Tony Dardis, uh, who took me, took us to Dublin to watch uh, Ibsen's uh, Doll's House, you know, come on, right? <laughs> I'd, never been, I'd never been any further in a cinema in my life, you know, we, here we are at the Abbey Theatre watching A Doll's House and it's blow your brains, you know, it's 
just so mm. far advanced. And then you learn actually, wow, this is amazing. Um, you know, and people like Zoe Reed and I remember Dardis sometimes saying, you know, what would you rather read, boys and girls? You know, would you rather read the sports pages of the Sun or the Daily Mirror or the Times? You see, and we all said Daily Mirror, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then he put the, the reports on the table and said, well, would you rather read this report or that report? You know, and then the first time you start to realize that actually education is everything. So one tag for me was fabulous. And, and I was chatting to Joe Burn the other day and he, he was telling me something like, one year they put 80 kids into further education, one year. They were just really free thinkers, great guys. Just when you mentioned education and educational betterment, Kevin, a man and Damien, a man that we would have known over the years, uh, Donald Donnelly, uh, Chris mentioned him earlier there uh, in terms of managing the, the Tyrone Miners. But uh, also, Chris, he played a, quite a significant part in your life in terms of when you went to Queens as well, if I remember right. I was, first of all, um, I was not uh, willing to participate, if you like, in, in, in his regime that he was that he was trying to impose, which was a positive regime. And Jimmy Grant was working with him at the time as well. And they were, they, I mean, Colin Gormley, who may or may not come up in this conversation, uh, who's now a Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, who did the reading on uh, the audible reading for the Humpty Dumpty Man. We finished it last week. We loaded it up last week. We're waiting on... Um, um, Amazon Audible to approve it. There's a few swears in there, so uh, I presume there's some sort of a matrix that finds an uh, algorithm that finds the um, swears and then they have to review it. So we're still waiting for it to be approved. But Colin Gormley was at St. Pat's and, and went through Donald Donnelly's regime uh, and went to the brothers and, and then ended up at Manchester. And he, while he was at Manchester, he was a, a, in a group of thespians along with Benedict Cumberbatch. And that's how he got into the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh, and it's a great story. And you, his father, Paddy, very well, and, 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 and Dermot, his brothers, and Seamus, and I know them, um, them already over, over the years, you know, the Cannondale boys. And of course, uh, Oma, Oma has a, a, a tradition, Chris, of uh, people in the art doing very, very <laughs> music, dancing, acting. There's a rich, rich tradition there, even going back to the times of, of the pantomimes way back in in the old town hall, as I'm sure you, you may have gone to see. Oh, yeah, yeah. Paddy Laird and, and, and Stephen McKenna, you know, couldn't mention the CBS without mentioning Stephen McKenna. Now, he never taught me, but I knew him over the years. What an absolutely wonderful man. What a brain, eh? But, but oh. going back to going, yeah, it's just incredible. Walk in the encyclopedia, but I'm such an interesting man to talk with. I mean, he would just you'd give your left arm for half an hour with Stephen McKenna. Um, but, but, well, not this, that's the right arm. I'm going to give up the other one. <laughs> give up the good one, Chris, give up the good one. <laughs> but, but, um, um, Donald Donnelly, yes. Um, so it was quite funny because many, many years later, having, you know, not engaged with him and, and, and in the book, you, you will learn if you, if you read it. I mean, my, my whole life at that stage, you know, without any parents, now, um, we did have a stepfather, Paco Hagen, who was a great man, but. The circumstances were pretty bad all around, you know, growing, gr growing up kids who were sort of teenage and post-teenage world. Um, and then there wasn't, you know, it was just difficult. The troubles were quite significant at that time, you know, mid-70s, late-70s. Um, and, you know, there was no real sort of pastoral care and certainly no church care. And our mother died in March 1975 um, and they expelled Paul in July four months later, you know, just after his uh, 14th birthday. And as the guy in the uh, Irish News article, which was which came out um, on Saturday, 
uh, wrote, you know, he was a fully fledged alcoholic by the time he was 16. Yeah, yeah. And that is no exaggeration, you know. Um, so, um, so going back to Donald Donnelly, um, the real beauty of, of that story is um, I'm in Queens, um, having gone back to school at 18. Paul, Paul went into his first alcohol treatment unit at 18, and I went back to school at 18, which would have been, you know, uh, 18 months later, the age difference between us. And I was working in Shergrams in the Derry Road. I got my finger caught in the machine. I went to Oma Health Centre and on my way back home, stopped in Oma Tech and said, I need to go back to school. That is a true story. Had I not got my finger stuck in the machine, I wouldn't have been in Oma Tech. And they were already a week in and they actually, Tony Dardis um, pushed the boat out and got me in. And that's a true story. So, so anyway, I went back to school at 18 and then I, I sort of winged through quite quickly and into Queens and, and, some of the skills I learned at the pub, you know, I've got great mental maths capacity and stuff like marking the dartboard and um, marking the dartboard and and um, run the boogies and, and run the boogies and, and all of that stuff, you know. So by the time I was like 14, 15, I was very, very good at horses and poker. Um, so I'd have been playing poker at that age with adults, you know, everybody else would have been adults more or less. And I won the um, tournament at almost an enders when I was about 18 I'd say uh, so you know I don't know 100 other players whatever it is um, so anyway um, I met Donald Donnelly at Queen's and um, and the first thing I said to him what are you doing here and he said I could ask you the same question <laughs> a very good line how the hell did you get here? yeah yeah particularly he uh, didn't really engage and engage with him but Donald Donald was involved with us in terms of management I'm just thinking, um, as, a, as a minor manager, Kevin, back in 73, with that very, very good throw minor side. And then later on, he, he took over when Art retired in, in 88. He was a bit unlucky, Kevin, was he, with, with, in terms of, he was inspira- a real inspirational figure, a real leader. But he was a bit unlucky in terms of the uh, sort of that 88, 89 era. Yeah, he was. That look, you played in that final 88, no, I suppose it still uh, rags no. you, the fact that. No, we put the penalty towards the end against Monaghan, and uh, we didn't we didn't get. And of course, there was no back door back then. That was that was a very good Tyrone team. Only two years after getting beaten in All Ireland final, that was them out, out of Ulster or out of the out of the championship. Uh, then the following year, um, I always remember them them two days in in, in Clonus when when Don was the manager. Real warm warm days, and Scotty Conway is free. Uh, virtually the last kick of the game and went over via the post to, to earn us a, a replay and in the replay remember um, Damon O'Hagan and Eugene McKenna slicing open the, the Donegal defence in the opening few minutes and I think it was O'Hagan maybe palmed the ball into the net and you know there was no there was no way back for Donegal and um, it's actually after all earned semi-final that year Tyrone probably didn't do themselves justice that day Willie, Willie Joe Podden inspired Mayo um Got the better of us, so I suppose he it was unlucky that time. That was '89, and we had to wait what to '95 to, before we, we won an Ulster title. Which, you know, if you're if you're thinking in terms of, of, of the current day, you know, waiting six years for your own team to win an Ulster title, it's it's like a famine. But mm. um, no, it was unlucky because that, that you know there was still a lot of the bulk of the '86 squad were still there in '89, and there was a lot of potential in that Tyrone own team, and they just. Run look, I think it was three points in a bit that day by Mayo. Um, there was maybe one that got away as well, maybe a, a, a great chance 
just like 86, three years earlier, we got Connacht opposition in the semi-final and I suppose back in the end days they, that um, you want to avoid Leinster and, and Munster, for, for, especially for Ulster teams and um, it was probably an opportunity to come back to an all-round final which was just, just come up short now. Yeah. Chris, I just if I can take you back when you mentioned about Donald Donnelly, obviously that minor side. That was a, a very, very good throw minor side. But also, I suppose, uh, you mentioned Francie O'Neill there, a man who, I have to say, I, I had great, great time for. He was a great, great fan of Francie. He was such a great character and a real, almost an endless man. I remember meeting him after an endless were beating the championship one year. He was just in tears. And because we were a rival club, I didn't feel an awful lot of sympathy for them, but I certainly felt it for <laughs> France. But going back to that 73, Frank McGuigan... <laughs> Course would have been man who would have been on on the radar very much at that time. Was there something as as a child of your age? Were you aware of McGuigan at that stage, or were you just in awe of the, the the event and the occasion? Yeah, I should say quickly that um, um, when I did say didn't engage with Donald, I meant it in that particular time at school. But um, he was the only person I, that I can recall as as being a major influence from a from an educationalist perspective upon me prior to going back to school in, you know, five years later. So, um, yeah, Don Donnelly was a great guy, a wonderful man. Yeah. Um, so, and, and somebody who I, I absolutely needed along the way. Everybody needs someone to look out for them, you know, so. Um, I can just tell you a wee story. We, we played, and Kevin will remember this, we played Armagh and Oma. Do you remember Kevin, the row in the tunnel? And uh, we, we were well behind at halftime, nine points. And when the row was settled in the tunnel, we went to the changing room. Donald Donnelly gave a speech that day that almost tossed the, the changing rooms. And when we got out in the second half, McCabe and McKenna turned it on. But it, what really happened was the speech in the changing room at halftime was what changed the game. But I tell you, <laughs> he was a man when he spoke, people listened. Yeah, I remember I was at that game. I was watching it with PJ Duffy, of all people. At, at, uh, we were standing on the Kelly Bragg um, side of the, of the pitch, you know, and where you stood there. And it got at half time, you know, what a what a turnaround that second half was. Absolutely brilliant. And then and then I was I was thinking as you boys were talking earlier, you know, and, and Kevin was making the point, you know, we beat Galway in, in 86 and then we, we were on for Mayo. And you think we actually thought we I mean maybe it was just too much confidence in, in a silly way, Noel. I mean, you were there. I mean, but but you know, didn't perform that day. Um, you know, remember the, the goal was pounded into the net and we had we had a chance, we had a lot of chances early in the second half and then we faded very badly in the last quarter I correct me if I'm wrong um, but but that was it. yeah so uh, 73 um, you know Frank McGuigan was was mercurial you know and I should say I was with Francie O'Neill the night before he died this is a good story and I'll, I'll come back to the Frank McGuigan thing and I turned up in, in the Trone County Hospital and I, John McGurr I think had said to me um, you know Francie's not going to do. Have you got the time to go and see him? No, I'll tell you, it wasn't from John McGurr. It was um, McCusker who worked in the place. Um, I can't think of his name now, um, but he was the barman there. And we had a wee house in Churchill. And I was I came out of it and I saw him and, and I said, how's Francie? And he said, he's not going to do. And I jumped in the car right away and I went out and, and, got, and went in to see him. And then I handed over inverted commas to Pat Fahey and John McGurr and, and then he died that night. But the first thing he said to me was, ah, Colby said, how does Celtic do today? <laughs> you know, <laughs> first thing, how does Celtic, how does Celtic do, Colby? And then we were talking about the great players, Noel, um, that, that, and Frank McGuigan, of course, was his, was his hero. So I think that was about, um, 
well, about 1993 or something like that. I don't know. Um, but he was Frank McGuigan, of course, was his hero. But the other players he mentioned on that day were, were Liam Salmon, who missed the penalty in, in 74. Um, when I was there with Francie and sitting in the Hogan stand, we, we were out, I'd been lifted over the turnstiles in 73 and 74 and was sitting right bang on with the penalty spot watching Liam Salmon um, and Paddy Collins save in 74, Dublin one. But um, anyway, um, yeah, so, so I, I was talking, just filling in time, you know, chatting about football and so on and, and asking about the great players and keeping them engaged, you know, because he was clearly not going to do. And, and uh, he said, um, McGuigan, but obviously Eugene McKenna, you know. Um, but he also talked about um, Liam Salmon. Uh, but he said the other great player who wasn't from Tyrone it was Sean O'Neill. There you go, there's a name. And he mentioned as well, Noel, I, was, I may have mentioned this to you before. It was on about some fella Smith who played for Omas Hernandez. Kevin, you might be able to help here, I don't know, but he was from Armagh originally uh, and came up to Oma. Maybe he was working in, um, um, in some of the government entities and then played for, for Oma and he thought he was a great player. But, you know, obviously his heart and soul was Tyrone, you know, that was it, Francie. But he used, to, he used to come into our pub, you know, and he had the pub opposite. And another story, I'm digressing, but uh, he'd be sitting on the high stool and then eventually he'd be rolled into one of the beds in our house, you know. Uh, there was a bed outside our main bedroom in the attic space and, and f- about five of us were in the attic space and there was this little bed in the eaves and Francie would be in that. And then my eldest sister Marie used to shout up the stairs. She'd say, Art and Paul and Christy, Bridgie and Joni. Or Francie would say, and Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Yeah, so, <laughs> so that, that was the great line in the house about Francie. But no, he was very much loved. I would say um, another very important figure for me, you know, very much a grandfather-type character. Took me to all the games, and it was great. But, uh, yeah, Frank, Frank McGuigan, in 30 seconds then, uh, um, you know, when he, when he was going away, you know, and, and coming back, you know, I mean, you, you, you will be able to relate to this as much. All of you will be able to relate to this as much as I will. Um, but, you know, it was a sort of a great fanfare when he came back, you know, but but 73, he was just the bee's knees, right? You know, Jimmy Barry Murphy and, and the Cork team and Frank McGuigan, you know, coming through for Tyrone, you know, these were the names, right? Um, and um, there we go. That's it. I remember I heard, I heard the 73 semi-final on my, on my handheld radio while on the bed in a house in Dunfanaghy and uh, Jimmy Barry Murphy did the business that day for Cork, right? Yeah, Cork. That was a very, very good Cork say. Damien, Frank McGuigan, uh, white boots is, 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 was the first thing that uh, I remember. And Chris, I'm interested to hear your view on this one. I, I happened to notice yesterday, just looking at some of the teams that, that I saw over the weekend, and uh, the prevalence of black boots, Damien, as opposed to yellow, orange, pink, green, and so on. Mm. And I have to say, if I'd applied for the, the county manager's job, the first thing I would have done would have been asked all the players to bring their boots. <laughs> Anybody without... <laughs> <laughs> would have been shown the door. Damien, Frank McGuigan, white boots, long hair, hairbands, and a bit of skill. But we, Noel, you, were, you and me were fortunate enough uh, a few years back um, to go on the club drone trip to New York. And um, I think Peter was there, McCabe was there, and uh, Mickey Hart was there. Mickey Hart was there, and McGregor was there. And <coughs> um, we were we, we went to Rockland, I think, to 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 the opening or the, with a with a night out there anyway. But 
this man is, you know, we we revere Canavan and quite rightly for everything Canavan's done and, you know, the great servant they had. But we had the prince, we had God, and we had the king in New York. And he was the king of New York because even, you know, 20, 30 years hence, his heyday in New York, McGuigan's still the king in New York. You know, anybody that's in that Irish community in New York just thinks so much of him. And the sad reality is, I suppose for people of Tyrone, he probably spent the best of his playing days in New York, and it was the New York probably diaspora that saw, you know, and the Irish diaspora out there that would have seen the best of McGuigan. Yes, there were glimpses of it, and we got it at home. I'm sure you guys probably more so remember it than me. But in in, in 2003, uh, I was in uh, New York, uh, invited over by my my former colleagues at Merrill Lynch. And um, it was Bertie Ahern was being offered an honorary doctorate at, at a university in Fairfield, I think, in Connecticut. So that night uh, we were in the pub in, in New York, um, in McSorley's, Manhattan Avenue, I think, right? I'm not sure. But, um, and Brian Cowan, who was number two in, in, in um, Atonished at the time, I'm fairly sure, Minister, Minister for Finance, in fact, I take it back. I was there on business um, in the United Nations or whatever it was, um, and he was in the pub late with, with us, and there were all awfully boys there. But just to pick up on what you said there, Damien, all night long, to the extent there was any conversation about football, was about Frank McGuigan. And, and uh, people were queuing up to tell me stories about mm-hmm. Frank McGuigan. It was fabulous, yeah. But, of course, the other thing, um, when he came back in 84 and all, um, you were there, um, um, and we, we played Dublin in, in the semi-final, but I remember Jerry Hargan was marking him, but um, do you want to pick up on that? Jerry Hargan plus two. <laughs> 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 oh, he may as well have had a saddle that day. The, the way. <laughs> Chris, Chris, here's what I want you to think about. 80, um, in, in 84, Frank scored 11 points. And, yes. Uh, yeah, right. And fabulous scores they all were. But I want you to work out then, of the, fifth, the 15 points that we scored that day, Frank got 11, but who was have scored the final point in the game? Just think of it that one way. Damien tells us, finishes off that story about... Uh, <laughs> I won't have much trouble guessing on that one, no. I wonder how many yards out that one was, no. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, no fair play to you, mate. That's all I say. It was a pass at about the three. Noah was, was always excellent at chipping in when the game was over. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you're, you're on about Frank McGuigan. I remember seeing him, my father taking him to see this uh, Tyrone playing in Dungannon and I could hardly see how to be held up with this fellow with long blonde hair in the middle of the field. And that's the first time ever I've seen him. He's been a hero of mine. But remember, I think I told you before, Noel, he, he, when he came home from America, he came home in 82, he home in 82 played in the championship in 82, and uh, it was in Uri against Down. And the previous year, um, Back then, I suppose Ulster teams weren't really challenging for, for all around titles. But if my memory serves me right, I think the year before there was an all uh, Ulster Division One National League final down in Armagh, and uh, down won it. Uh, and uh, if I'm right in saying, I think Paddy Candy was maybe the All Star fullback that year. But I remember being in the crowd in, in Uri, and I wasn't too old, it was maybe 13, 14, but uh. We're in the middle of the down, it was five minutes to go, and I still can see it yet. And uh, you know, the down ones were given at large. What you know, what did you bring this man home from America for? What just 
and the, and the ball was right in the right wing. Kevin McCabe caught it and he hit a big high ball in. And McGuigan come running out for it with Paddy Candy snapping on his heels. And I still, I can still see it yet. Whatever McGuigan caught it, it's probably about 30 yards from goals, but he caught it in his chest and he caught it and torn it at the same time. And he was all of a sudden in split second, he was facing the goals and Paddy Candy was still looking down the field. He was opposite. He just caught it and, and torn it like that. And all of a sudden, and he maybe took an hour step and he let it go into the top right-hand corner. Pat, Pat Donnan was in the down goals and uh, there was a thrown supporter beside us a real, real quick. He says, that's why we brought him home from America. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Well, it was an outstanding goal and, and one of the best goals ever I've seen in my life. And unfortunately, you know, there was no... Uh, that's two great goals you've seen, Kevin. Well, I've seen yours, yeah. no one can still, I can still yeah. see... Yo, well, listen, well, listen, no, you're you're on with the black boots, but Frank McGuigan, uh, you 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 played with him, so you know better than me, or, or not played with him, but know better than me. Let me put it that way. When he when he uh, you played with him, sorry, eighty four, of course. Um, but when he went up for a ball and had this majestic way of going up for a ball, he always came down with it. Yeah. Right. And and and, and the way you said there as well, um, uh, you know about Kevin about turning you. It'd be it'd already be making his next move before he'd get before he'd land on the ground. No, but uh, on 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 Noel's black boots thing there, um, Francie Neil took me around to see Tyrone train in St Pat's Park. No, I'm sure you were around there many times. Yeah, yeah. And and um, Frank McGuigan, we were walking past, and Francie said, "It's Frank McGuigan." He was changing out of the boot of the car. Mm-hmm. Those are the days, right? Days, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those are those are today. That's today. That's happening today now. <laughs> These guys, oh, it's come back to it, right? Of course. Well, there's no, the, 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 it didn't matter where you talked out. It's, it's what you done when you when you did talk out and, and and crossed the white line. <laughs> I, I remember reading. I remember reading in the, in the Dungan Observer when I was going back in at the start of '84. I suppose Frank wouldn't give too many interviews, but there was a big two-page spread about uh, what he what he wanted to achieve before he before he retired from football and you know we had three things he wanted to achieve it was an Ulster title with, with Tyrone he had only won from 73 and he wanted another um, senior championship with Barbo. of course this was centenary year and he wanted an, um, another Railway Cup medal and he won all three that year I mean I mean, watching the, I remember watching the uh, the Railway Cup final it was on, on a Saturday evening it may have been in Salt Hill or somewhere but your man what you call your boy played full back for Galway? No, Stephen. McHugh, no. Was he McHugh? Maybe been Stephen, but wasn't Stephen? He was Mark. He it was, was marking Seamus McHugh. Mm. He was marking him in the in the in the final. But with Nudie Hughes on, do you remember Nudie talked about the the forward line that night? Was it Nudie Hughes, Greg Winnie, Martin McHugh, Frank McGuigan? Yeah, like what a forward line! Like Jesus, you're. You wouldn't get back there anywhere. No, no. Oh, what Chris, a man. I'm just wondering, Chris, you know, post post uh, Queen and heading off, obviously, to, to work and everything after that, you know, how, how important was, first of all, probably Oma and then um, Tyrone GA to you, then no matter where you went, as opposed to where tra- travels took you, you often sit, sit, uh, I read in your, uh, on your article in the Irish News about the fact that you were able to, you're a good man at persuading people. 
we we uh, we often using that persuasion to get away for the for a game or just to get away to watch a game somewhere. Or um, I'm just I'm just wondering how important Tyrone and, and the GA was to you, no matter where you were. Uh, no, fairly well, I'm sure. I'm verified this, but I, I didn't miss a game for years. I couldn't say it was a long, long time, you know. But I was fortunate enough to be able to come and go when it suited me, dare I say. Um, but but having said that, I mean, I'd still make commitments. So I'd go go and watch a game in Clonus or whatever, and and then get in a car and go to Dublin Airport and fly back to London that evening. You know, I mean, it wasn't. Uh, you still had to work the next day, and, and if there was a day off or. I could be in a position to be able to arrange meetings in Dublin on the Monday morning, but, you know, it wouldn't be... Uh, but, yeah, I would always... I uh, didn't miss a game for years. Um, but but the other thing, um, you know, in relation to Tyrone, I mean, in the story, um, uh, early on in the story of 73, um, and then I talk about in 2003, um, and that Barry Ahern thing I mentioned was on the Thursday night. So flew, or Friday night, I think it was. Thursday night, definitely Thursday. And we flew back. Um, I was probably back in London on, on the Saturday and, 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 and into Croke Park for the Sunday, you know, but um, to watch Bertie Ahern um, stand behind Peter Canavan that day. Um, but um, that year I got my brother Paul tickets for the All-Ireland, had, had fair access to tickets at that time. And um, there's a whole lot of Miguel family members and nieces and nephews and so on. Um, and then um, the story in relation to Paul, you know, um, uh, 2007, um, I was due to meet him in in, um, in Croke Park, and it was one of the games I missed in relation to something we had to do, and I couldn't go to the game, and, and we, we didn't meet. That was 2007. I saw the game, and unfortunately on TV, uh, Meath. But um, anyway, um, so from the beginning of the story to the end of the story, uh, Tyrone are involved, and then great people within the Tyrone network, like Donald Donnelly has been much talked about in this, on this call, but, you know, Noel McGinn in terms of helping with um, getting, getting writing over the years, over many years, um, you know, it's been, a, I, it's my, it's my best love of all Tyrone GAA, absolutely. Just on that, Chris, when Damien talks about that, I mean, we, we talked, Kevin mentioned about Frank McGuigan's ambitions. Um, do you have, ambitions in terms of we know that you're a very very successful man in terms of, of finance and, and, and the world that you, you you occupy but have you ambitions in, in terms of back home again do you ever see yourself thinking i'm going to come back there and i'm going to do a b and c for that town or for that team for that country um i, I think that's that's an ambition too far really i suppose i mean there's so much to achieve and, and, and what can one person do chris yeah. this, you know, I have mentioned to you several times about the gala, and if you're ever home, there's always, as I always said, there's always two seats on my table. There's not a problem whatever time that you're about. If it ever suits, we, we would lay. Well, I, I, I always be laying. I need an axe to bed the next day after that, Chris. <laughs> you need a, <laughs> need a bed under under a roof, yeah. Oh, definitely. Under roll into. Well, listen, Chris. Come here. Um, just before, as I say, uh, we, we, we can. Chat all night, but one of the things I wanted to mention was, um, your in terms of sporting life, uh, obviously, not too many people will be aware just how sporty you were in terms of athletics, but also particularly in terms of boxing. Boxing would be one of your one of your first loves. Yeah, I mean, it's actually quite interesting when you write the book, you know, um, because because I won the um, um, the 
what's his name, Shannon, um, I think of his nickname, rather, <laughs> I don't want to say that, Master oh. Shannon. Conte. Yeah, that's, uh, I was thinking I had that, but I, I was trying to think what his actual name was. Um, I won the, the, the trophy for, for winning um, most races or most medals uh, in St. Pat's uh, when I was, um, I don't know, 14. And I was best competitor of the year at all my boys and girls club when I was 15. And I was county champion boxer um, twice. Um, I was in four, four county finals. And I actually was chatting to uh, Damien earlier um, when we were setting up for this. And uh, my first fight was actually in a throne final. But I was 12 years old and there was only two of us in, in the competition. Uh, me and a fella from Carrickmore, I think. Um, but um, no, from Clano, I take it back. And we, the fight was in Clano. And Frank Irvin was the main man then. So, um, but it was very well organized, obviously. And Frank was a, a big figure um, in, in, in boxing. So, um, so yeah. Um, but actually, as far as my athleticism is concerned, my brother Paul was a better athlete than me, but longer limbed. And, but he never, uh, never made the most of it, unfortunately. And I met um, Shawnee Myler's dad, Sean, one day. And he said to me, he said, whatever happened to one who got away? And I, and I thought he was actually referring to me. And I said, oh. And he said, no, your brother, Paul. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Paul, well, it's actually your cousin, Barry, was another guy who could, who could do it. Good run, yeah. I, 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 joke, I was actually joking there. I, I, was, I said Barry to, to, to Sean. He said, no, your brother, Paul. Anyway, um, the boxing, I was just thinking before coming on, who all the different people that, were involved in the boxing while I was involved in boxing, but Irvin Anderson, who ran the Carrick Moore Club, was, yes. was the equivalent yes. then of Mickey Hart because he had so many Ulster and Irish champions, you know, and the best boxer in home at that time, you would know him, Noel, uh, Charlie Colton, was yeah. in the, had the worst of bad luck because he was in the same group as Kieran Horish and, and Kenny Armstrong from Carrick Moore, who were both the uh, yeah. same weight and, and, and Ulster champion and Irish champions as well. There were some great boxers. And Carrick Moore, the McCartan brothers were, were good boxers. But I remember Pat Ali McGarrity, was it? They used to do the Ali shuffle and all that stuff and keep us oh. all entertained. Yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then there was Joe McGillian. I'll tell you, Joe was a hard man. <laughs> we, uh, the Golden Gloves uh, used to come and fight and, and, um, and they had this um, huge, big, dare I say, black guy, you know, fighting with the Golden Gloves, and, and or may even have been a guy from the camp, and maybe a tournament against the camp. Fairly sure it was the Golden Gloves, given the security issues around. Otherwise, but Joe caught this fella under the chin, and I never seen anything like it. You know, you, you probably see it on TV, but to be right there beside it, and the guy's legs start to wobble, and the whole body falls like a sack of potatoes under the, under the canvas. You know, and Joe caught him. It was a fabulous. Fabulous punch, but um, that's what it's about. That's the game, right? But other people who were involved um, in terms of clubs, I mean, there's a good club in Drum Quinn. And Sean McLaughlin, uh, 95, uh, he, his, I think he was a boxer, but it's certainly, I think his brother, I think it was Eddie, his elder brother would have been a boxer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then in terms of Castle Derg, I, I fought Bale Lynch. If you know him, he's a decent footballer and grew a whole lot taller than me afterwards. Um, and of course, John Lynch. Yeah, well, just when you mentioned Bill, uh, Bill is now a member of Homeless and Endless. He was a club referee for a number of years and he's also a youth officer there. And he's living in Oman now. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. a tidy, tidy boxer and good footballer too. Yeah. Um, but um, John Lynch, of course, was a boxer as well. 
possibly well, fought Charlie, fought possibly fought Charlie Colton. Yeah. He fought. He fought anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know one thing. He sorted out a lot of rows. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Chris. Hey, we 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 could talk for 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 hours. Unfortunately, time always breaks us in these situations. But come here, listen. Delighted with the book, big Joe. Called over the same this evening. He's really, really enjoying it. He says best regards to you, and he's hoping that it's a massive, massive success. I did say that name, Fra Fee earlier. I hope you keep note of it, and you guys. Yes. The but anyway, listen. On behalf of Team Talk, Mike, we're delighted. Things are going so well for you. Best wishes for the book and with the the, the continued expansion of whatever the, the the book leads to eventually. But uh, remember, we in Tyrone, we in Team Talk, Mike, we were there right at the start. Chris will be there right at the end. You're the man, Noel. You're the man. Thanks so much. Chris, thank, thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Damien. <laughs> Thanks, All Chris. The scrapyard memories had lain dormant in my consciousness, but were now jumping around in my head. I saw again the image of the chariot coming over me, about to cut through my body as it flew, while the angel's words were played over and over in my head, and I sank further into the aircraft seat. It'll be all right. It'll be all right. I was sitting in seat 5C on the half-full year-end flight. I always try to sit in a C-seat, an aisle seat, so that my permanently bent elbow doesn't stick into another passenger's ribcage. I was glad that the seat on my left, 5B, was vacant, as I dried the tears that had begun to slowly slip from my eyes. I sensed that those sitting nearby could see I was crying, and guessed they would figure out that someone close to me had died and would leave me to my grief. They couldn't know that I was grieving my own near death, I took deep breaths, pushed my back hard into the upright seat and sat with my eyes closed, seeking to regain my composure. Are you okay, sir? asked the flight attendant, breaking the silence. Yes, thank you. Can I have another red wine, please? The song came back into my head as the wine seeped into my veins. Its tempo soared as my XC-90 raced down the Killeen Hill. Inside the pressurised aircraft cabin, I examined the images over and over until I saw for the first time small memory flashes of the day, 25 years before. Jesus, I had cried, when the pain of the chariot's headlights roared onto me. Jesus, Jesus, I repeated quietly, and saw my arms stretched out in front of me. Then I saw it all. A virtual video clip of my near-death scene streamed before me like an apparition. The wheel of the oncoming lorry rose onto my car's engine and on towards me in the driver's seat, with the deafening, clattering, scraping and screeching of steel on steel. The noise drowned out my cries as the rotating blade careered towards me and descended on my steering wheel, turning it as it did so. In that split second it spun me away from the underside of the oncoming lorry and spared my life. But still it reached to eat me, hurting me in every way imaginable, cutting and gorging through my body. Then it spat me out and spun me down the Dublin road my car screaming and screeching along the tarmarked surface like a half-ton spinning top. Everything went quiet. There was not a sound except for my groaning. Thirty thousand feet below the Aer Lingus flight, I lay on my back. My legs were trapped under the dashboard of my car. I could not move. I was staring at the pinstriped city shirts that hung freshly pressed on the coat hook in the back. Blood streamed into my mouth and was swallowed involuntarily. I coughed against the flow and spat it out, only for it to be quickly replaced with more. Breathe, breathe, I raged, as though my irate boxing trainer was in the car with me. Fight, 
fight, said the voice. My arms were spread across my chest, as if folded, left on top of right. I raised my left hand to try to staunch the wound in my jaw. Blood ran onto my face from the gaping hole cut through the back of my hand. I stretched the Frankenstein-like left hand towards my city shirts, but could not get hold of a shirt tail. My arm fell prone and lifeless onto the car seat. Blood streamed into my eyes from my forehead and flowed furiously into my mouth and throat from the hole in my jaw. Panic filled my brain. My tongue tried frantically to stem the flow as I choked and coughed and spat the river of blood onto the seat beneath me. Soon, I would not be able to breathe. It'll be all right, said the angel. It'll be all right, as I slumped in the aircraft seat. Ladies and gentlemen, we're about to begin our descent into London Heathrow, advised the voice on the intercom. Thank <laughs> you.